Well, if we could this evening, with the Lord's help and guidance, if we could turn back to that portion of Scripture that we read. First letter of Paul to the Thessalonians in chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. And if we take as our text for consideration the words of verses 13 and 14. First Thessalonians chapter 4 at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep. For you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Those who sleep in Jesus. There are many people throughout the world who would debate, discuss and even argue over the question whether or not there is life after death. But it was John Blanchard, the well-known Christian author and apologist who was speaking uh, consequently in Carloway on Thursday evening, he wrote in one of his books that there is no one in the world who has ever debated or discussed or argued over the question, is there death after life? Many have argued over whether there is life after death, but no one has ever argued over whether there is death after life. Because everyone knows that death is our greatest certainty. As John Blanchard wrote on another occasion, he said, Man can defy gravity, but he cannot defy the grave. My friend, there is nothing surer than death. And we see it all the time. We are continually reminded of its voice and its presence in our communities. We know that there is nothing in this world that can stop it. Not even the best medical science in all the world can stop this great epidemic that we have. Nothing in all the world can stop it. And we all know it's coming. And that one day it will come to us. Far too often we think that that day is somewhere in the distant future. But what we forget is that death is no respecter of persons. And sometimes it doesn't ask us how old we are. It doesn't ask if we have sorted out all our finances. It doesn't ask if we have made a will. It doesn't ask if we have ensured that everyone in our family will be fine. It doesn't even ask if we are ready. Because sometimes death doesn't ask us any questions. It just comes and it just takes. And is that not what Jesus said about our enemy? That... And it's certainly true of our last enemy, death, that the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And that's the promise of the gospel. In fact, that is the the gospel because the bad news is that we are all going to die. Sin has infected and affected everyone in this world. We all have this 
disease of sin and we all carry it. We're all sinners by nature and sinners by practice and the cost of being a sinner is death. The wages of sin, says the Bible, is death. Not only physical death, but spiritual death. And that's the bad news, the really bad news, the devastating news. But the good news, the gospel, the good news is that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. My friend, the hope of the Christian in the face of death It isn't what will happen at death or when it will happen or why it will happen or how it will happen. The hope of the Christian is that when it does happen, death is not the end. Death after life is only a doorway into life after death. And this is what Paul is talking about here in his first letter to the Thessalonians. He was writing to the Thessalonians in order to to remind them of the hope which they have as Christians. And that they should take comfort in the fact that death is not the end. But Paul describes the darkness and the pain of death. He describes it to the Thessalonians in such a beautiful way. Because he says that those who have died, they have fallen asleep in Jesus. They have fallen asleep. In Jesus. But in these closing verses in chapter 4, Paul not only speaks about the hope of the Christian at death, he also speaks about the hope of the Christian at the resurrection. And he does so in order to, to comfort the Thessalonians, which is what he says in the last verse of, of chapter 4. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so the hope of the Christian at death and the hope of the Christian at the resurrection. It ought to be a comfort to us as Christians. And this is what the Catechism is describing for us in in question 37 and, and 38. Where question 37, which we're looking at this evening, it highlights the hope of the Christian at death. Then question 37, 38, which we'll look at, God willing, next Lord's Day, it highlights for us the hope of the Christian at the resurrection. It highlights the hope of the Christian at the resurrection. A beautiful thought. But this evening we're focusing our attention upon, upon these verses. Verses 13 and 14. And we're seeking to understand why there is comfort and hope for the Christian at death. And I'd like us to consider this topic under four headings. And the four headings. The reality of death. The result of death. The rest in death. And the resurrection after death. The reality of death. The result of death. The rest in death. And the resurrection after death. So we look firstly at the reality of death. The reality of death. The Westminster Larger Catechism. Which is similar to our Shorter Catechism. It's printed out on your your sheet. That you have in the intimations. Uh, the larger catechism is pretty much the same as the shorter one, but only with more questions. And question 84, it asks, shall all men die? In other words, does everyone die? And the larger catechism gives the following answer. It says, death being threatened as the wages of sin, it is appointed unto all men once to die, for all have sinned. 
And that's what's highlighted for us in Scripture. That the wages of sin is death. And that it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And you know it was Solomon. Solomon the wisest man who ever lived. He emphasized in his sermon in the book of Ecclesiastes. That everything in this life he said it will have a beginning. And if it has a beginning then it will have an end point. If it has an alpha point it will have an omega point. And he said to everything there is a season. And a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. But it wasn't only Solomon who wrote about the reality of death. Moses, the man of God, he also mentioned it. When he was praying about it in Psalm 90. The, the psalm we were, we were just singing. And Psalm 90, it's the oldest psalm in the Psalter. It's over three and a half thousand years old. And way back then, Moses was aware of the fact that life is short, death is sure, sin is the cause, and Christ is the cure. Because having described God as this eternal dwelling place in the beginning of his prayer, the eternal dwelling place, he says, that will never change or be removed, Moses said about us. He came to us and he said that our years in this life, they're like a tale that is told. Where they all pass by so quickly. In fact Moses said that the length of our days in this world will reach its limit at about 70 years. Three score and ten. Which isn't many. But if the Lord is gracious he says if we're kept in good health. Moses said that if we reach we will reach 80 years or more. And, but he affirms that the outcome will still be the same. Regardless of our age. He says that our life, he says, it is soon cut off and we are removed. We are removed from this world and from the scene of time. But Moses, he didn't just speak about the reality of death in order to, to point out the facts and highlight all the, the figures for us. He spoke about the reality of death in order that we would take it seriously. He spoke about the reality of death in order that we wouldn't waste our life. He spoke about the reality of death in order that we would consider eternity and the God of eternity. Moses spoke about death in order to point us to the hope which is found in Psalm 90. The hope of keeping our end in mind and to count our days and to apply our hearts to God's wisdom and to God's truth. That we may live accordingly. Because far too often we think that it won't be us. And we think that it won't happen to us. And that's the greatest lie which the devil tells us. That our death is a distant event in the distant future. And we have plenty of time. Plenty of time. But all we have to do. All we have to do is look around our community and consider some of the homes and some of the families and see the devastation which death has brought upon them. And that's what Moses says in Psalm 90. He's, he says the wisest thing we could ever do is to count our days and to apply our hearts to wisdom by seeking the Lord. 
But you know, it's not only Solomon and Moses, these great men of the Old Testament. It's not only them who spoke about the reality of death. David did too. In Psalm 103. We were singing it as well. And David said that God, he doesn't forget that we are dust. We forget that we are dust. We think that we're invincible and unstoppable. But God remembers that we are dust. Because he made us from the dust. And the curse that is upon us is that from the dust we came and to the dust we shall return. But more than that, says David, we're not only like dust, he says, we're like the grass. The grass which grows like the flowers in a field, where the field is in bloom, only for a season. And when the harvest comes and it's, it's soon cut down, then the wind passes over it. The wind passes over it and the place which once knew us and was familiar with us and accustomed to us, it will know us no more. And as the wind passes over and another season comes and another generation emerges, everyone will forget that we were once there. We will only be a distant memory. And you know, my friend, the Bible is repeatedly stressing to us That this life is not permanent. This is not our long home. This is not our final resting place. Because we are only passing through. But before you begin to think that this is just a morbid Sunday night sermon. I want you to see that this is reality. This is reality. There is nothing more real to us than the subject of death. There is nothing more relevant to us than the subject of death. This is not an old-fashioned, outdated phenomenon. No, death is still claiming its victims and death is still with us. And we're all involved in it. And no one, no one is excluded. And I don't need to tell you, oh, I don't need to tell you that death It's one of the most painful experiences in life. I don't need to describe to you the pain and the the heartache and the brokenness that death leaves in families and brings to family homes. I don't need to explain the loneliness and the silence and the void that is left in people's lives. And that when death does take place, we are but poor comforters. Because there are no words which can be said or No expressions of condolence that can ever be enough. That can never mend the broken hearts of those who are mourning. And you know that's why we come together as a community. At times of death and gather in God's house. And seek the comfort and consolation and help of the God who made us. And the God who understands us even in times of sorrow. Because he is the God of all comfort. He is the the father of mercies. And his son Jesus Christ. He's the victor over death. And he's got the power over the grave. And that's where we ought to find comfort. That's what Paul is reminding us here. That we do not sorrow. As those without hope. Because our hope. He says it's sure and steadfast. It's found in Jesus Christ, the anchor of our soul. But you know, 
You know what saddens me? And what I find so hard to understand is that people don't view death as the enemy. And what I find difficult is that they try to make light of death and they try to soften the blow. Not by looking to Christ and exalting his name, but by looking to self and exalting man. My friend, let me say this clearly. A funeral is not about exalting man. It's not about telling everyone how good a person was or what they did in their life or how nice they were. A funeral is not about reading eulogies or making tributes or giving homages. It's not about sending people to heaven who were graceless and godless. A funeral is an act of worship. Therefore it ought to be all about God. Yes, of course, a funeral is to give thanks to the God who who gave that precious life. And to give thanks for the person who died and all that they were to their family and to their community and to their friends. But a funeral, it's not about exalting the dead. It's about seeking comfort for the living by looking to a risen and exalted Christ. Because that's where true comfort is to be found. That's where lasting hope and assurance can be located. By trusting in a Christ who entered into death. A Christ who died our death. A Christ who gives to us the hope of eternal life. And you know this is what Paul is talking about. That's what he's emphasizing to the Thessalonians. He's writing about the hope and the comfort of the Christian at death. And so we've looked at the reality of death. But secondly, let's consider the result of death. The result of death. Read again with me verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And when Paul wrote to these Thessalonians, he was writing to a very young church. Thessalonica was uh, an industrial and and commercial city in Greece. And by the time Paul wrote this letter, they had only been established as a church for only about a few years. And so the Thessalonians were not only a young church, but they were also a young church full of young Christians. And as young Christians, they needed to grow in their faith and in their understanding of the scriptures. But the reason Paul wrote to them was because of a misunderstanding they had about the second coming of Christ. They thought that Jesus Christ would return immediately or fairly soon after his ascension to heaven. But as the years went by, nothing changed. Jesus hadn't returned and the second coming hadn't taken place But what had changed was that some people in the congregation of the church in Thessalonica, they had died. Probably because of persecution. And this caused the Thessalonians great upset and and confusion. But they weren't upset and confused because their loved ones had passed away. They were upset and confused because they thought that Christ would return before anyone in the church would die. And they were questioning why their church members had died before Jesus returned. And what would happen to them when Jesus did return. 
And this confusion of the Thessalonians, it was because they had taken literally the words of Jesus. When Jesus said to his disciples, he said to them, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. But in that statement, Jesus wasn't talking about the second coming. He was talking about the transfiguration and the revelation of his glory to the disciples. And the young Thessalonians, they had misunderstood the teaching of Jesus and they had concluded that something must be wrong. And they were worried that those who had died weren't actually saved. But when Paul highlights this misunderstanding, he wants to comfort the Thessalonians by teaching them that even though Jesus Christ hasn't returned, death is not the end of the story. And Paul says we are not like unbelievers who have no hope. Because we have hope, he says. We have hope in Jesus Christ. That even though there is death after life, there is also life after death. We aren't to sorrow as those who have no hope, he's saying, because we have the greatest hope in life. And the greatest hope even in the face of death. Because we believe, he says, that Jesus died and rose again. And that he will bring to glory all who fall asleep in Jesus. That's our hope, says Paul. That's where our hope lies. Because in the death of Jesus Christ, we have the death of death. It's all based upon the finished work of Christ. Where death is defeated. And the grave is conquered. And the victory is won. But there's more than that. And this is what Paul is drawing our attention to. Because the hope of the Christian at death. Is that they are made perfect in holiness. Which means that the result of death. It completes the work of redemption. In the heart of a believer. Where the work is finished. There is a result. And this is what we've been looking at over the past few weeks in the catechism. Where we've been looking at the application of the work of Christ in the heart of a believer. And time and time again we've said that the death of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. It is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Where the Holy Spirit he works faith in us. By revealing Jesus to us. He illuminates to us Jesus. And he exalts Jesus before us in the gospel. And we said that the Holy Spirit does this by regeneration. By making us alive again. He does it by our union with Christ. Where we are inseparably united to him. He does it by our effectual calling. Where we hear the gospel. We hear the call to come to Christ pressing upon our heart. And because we respond to that call, we, are, we receive the benefits of it. And our status as a sinner changes. Because, as we've learned, we are declared righteous in God's sight by our justification. We are declared a son or a daughter of our Heavenly Father by our adoption. And in our sanctification, we're changed from being a sinner to a saint by being molded and reshaped into the likeness of Jesus. And this change in our lives, it's a remarkable change. And it's all of grace from beginning to end. But in addition to this, we saw last time that there are many spiritual blessings 
which accompany and flow from this transformation of a believer. Because in Christ, says Paul to the Ephesians, we have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And we can say with full confidence and assurance that God loves me. Jesus died for me. The Holy Spirit lives in me. The Lord is good to me. And my Savior is keeping me. And as Christians, our Savior is keeping us until we leave this world. And so my friend, the moment a believer dies, salvation in their heart is complete. Sanctification is complete. Which means that the result of death is that they are freed from all sin. And all sinful tendencies. They are freed from the war between the world, the flesh and the devil. They are free indeed. Free in Christ. And they are made perfect in holiness. And you know I love the way in which the larger catechism explains what happens when a Christian dies. And even why a Christian dies. Because question 85 in the larger catechism it asks. Death being the wages of sin. Then it says... Why are not the righteous delivered from death, seeing all their sins are forgiven in Christ? And what the catechism is asking, it says that if Jesus died our death, why does a Christian have to experience suffering and death? And the catechism gives this answer. It says, the righteous shall be delivered from death itself at the last day. And even in death are delivered from the sting and the curse of it, so that although they die, Yet it is out of God's love to free them perfectly from sin and misery and to make them capable of further communion with Christ in glory, which they then enter upon. And it's an amazing way to put it, that death for a Christian is an act of God's love in which he frees them from the sin and misery of this life and he brings them into glory where they are made perfect in holiness and they do immediately pass into glory. And was that not the experience of the thief on the cross? Someone you probably wouldn't think who was made perfect in holiness. But you remember that when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified between two criminals. And where one of the criminals at the side of Christ, he He cursed Christ all the way to hell. But the other said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responded to that thief, Today, today you will be with me in paradise. Having spent his life as a criminal chasing after the world, he met with Jesus at the eleventh hour. And when he closed his eyes on this world for the last time, he opened them in paradise. He didn't enter purgatory or into an intermediate state. He opened his eyes in paradise with Jesus. Because at death, the thief on the cross was made perfect in holiness. Salvation's work was done, although it was a short work. It was done and he immediately passed into glory. And he didn't pass into glory because of his baptism. Because he was never baptized. He didn't pass into glory because of his good works. Or his church attendance. Or his Bible reading. Or anything else. 
Because he never did anything, any of that. No, the thief on the cross was made perfect in holiness and immediate, immediately passed into glory because of his faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And my friend, that's how you will pass into glory too. Faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Not by anything you've done, but just by faith in Jesus. Because the result of death is that salvation's work in the heart is complete. And so we've considered the reality of death, the result of death, but thirdly I'd like us to consider the rest in death. The rest in death. You look at verse 14. It says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And as we said already, Paul sought to comfort the Thessalonians by these words. And there's no doubt they are great words of comfort. Because Paul affirms that the reason why Christians should not despair in the face of death and sorrow as those who have no hope, it's all based upon the fundamental confession of the church of Jesus Christ. He says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And then built upon that confession is the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Because what Paul is saying is that as Jesus died and was rose again, so God will also raise those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And you know, I think that, that Paul, what Paul says here is that it's one of the most beautiful ways to describe death. Because death, it's an awful thing. An awful experience. It's the great separator. The great divider. It tears apart homes and, and families. But for us personally, as those who are still living, it is the great unknown. We've never been through it before. We don't know what it's like. And when we will face it, we have to face it alone. We can't bring our family into it. We can't bring our friends into it. We can't bring the elders into it. We can't bring our minister into it. We have to face death on our own. But here Paul reminds us that that's not entirely the case for the Christian. Because the Christian doesn't face death on their own. He says they have, they have to face death with Jesus by their side. And is that not what David said? He said about the shepherd in Psalm 23 that he was able to confess that the Lord is his shepherd and that as his shepherd the Lord will lead him to feed in the green pastures and to drink beside the still waters. And David says, Yea, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And that's a comfort which Paul is seeking to give the Thessalonians by explaining to them that when a Christian dies and when they sleep the sleep of death, it's as if they are only falling asleep. They are falling asleep in Jesus. And Paul is giving to us this beautiful image of the death of a Christian as one in which they just fall asleep 
leaning upon the bosom of Jesus. They fall asleep in Jesus. And of, of course the key word for Paul is the word in. In. Because for Paul everything the Christian is. And everything the Christian has. And everything the Christian does. It's all because they are in Christ. They are in him. They are united to him. They are in union with Christ. In which they are inseparably united to Jesus Christ. Both in death and in life. And this is the beauty of what Paul is saying. That even death, the great separator, the great divider, the great enemy, the last enemy, it has no power to separate the Christian from their saviour. That even in death, the Christian cannot be separated from Christ. Is that not what Paul asked the Romans in chapter 8? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No. Shall greatness? Distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Peril? No. Sword? No. No. And all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded, says Paul, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other creature, it's nothing, he says, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in all the world, he says, or in the world to come, is able to separate us from this Christ. And so my Christian friend, when we lie down to sleep the sleep of death, doesn't matter how we fall asleep in this world, whether peacefully or painfully, we are falling asleep in the arms of Christ. And that's the image we were given of Stephen's death in Acts chapter 7. You remember Stephen, the first Christian martyr of the New Testament, where he was stoned to death for preaching about the Christ he loved. And yet the book of Acts, it doesn't highlight the stoning of Stephen. Instead, it highlights the peace and the comfort and the hope that Stephen had at death. Because the last two verses of Acts chapter 7, they read, it says, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Although Stephen was stoned to death, he's portrayed as falling asleep in the arms of Jesus. He was comforted in his death by the Christ he was in union with. But at the point of death, there is, of course, a separation. <clears throat> separation of soul and body. Where the soul, made perfect in holiness, it immediately passes into glory. And the body, it's laid in a grave until the resurrection. But what I think is so wonderful is that even though the remains are laid to rest in the dust of the earth, those remains still belong to Jesus. They're still owned by Jesus. They have been bought by Jesus. Because when a Christian dies, it's not only their soul that's in union with Christ. Their body is too. 
Which means that when Jesus accomplished our redemption by his precious blood, he not only redeemed our soul from hell, he also redeemed our body from the destruction and the corruption of the grave. And this is why the Christian will receive a new body at the resurrection. They will receive a glorious body. Paul said to the Philippians, our citizenship, it's in heaven. And from it, we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. My Christian friend, we are being reminded this evening that one day we will have to put off this outer garment that is slowly fading away. But our hope is that one day in the future we will be clothed with a glorious body that will be incorruptible, undefiled and that does not fade away. But until then we must keep trusting that God has promised to bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Because there's a delay between now and that glorious day when all the graves will be opened and the dead in Christ will rise to meet their Saviour who loved them and gave himself for them. Which brings us to consider lastly and only in a few words the resurrection after death. The resurrection after death. Read again, just once again, verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We'll consider the resurrection after death more fully and God willing next Lord's Day when we consider the following verses after what Paul is saying here. But I just want to look in conclusion at question 86 in the larger catechism. Because it sums up everything that Paul has been teaching us this evening. He's been teaching us about the reality of death, the result of death, the rest in death, and the resurrection after death. And this is what the catechism asks. What is the communion and glory with Christ, which the members of the invisible church enjoy immediately after death? In other words, what can a Christian expect and hope for at death? And this is what the Catechism says. The communion and glory with Christ, which the members of the invisible church enjoy immediately after death, is that their souls are then made perfect in holiness. And we are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies, which even in death continue united to Christ and rest in their graves as in their beds till at the last day they be again united to their souls. It's a beautiful statement about the comfort and hope the Christian has at death. But as you know, the larger catechism doesn't stop there because it draws our attention to the reality of death, the result of death, the rest in death and the resurrection after death, it draws our attention to these things and to a person who dies without Christ. (coughs) Because the Catechism says, whereas 
the souls of the wicked are at their death cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, and their bodies kept in their graves as in their prisons, till the resurrection and judgment of the great day. My friend, there is a stark contrast between dying in Christ and dying out of Christ. And so the only question I want us to leave with this evening is how will we die? How will we die? Will we die in Christ or out of Christ? I hope and I pray, I really do, I hope that we will all fall asleep in the arms of Jesus. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. O Lord, our gracious God, we stand before thee as a God of eternity, a God who has no beginning and who has no end. And we look at ourselves and we realize that we are those who have a beginning and we have an end. Help us, Lord, to bear our end in mind. Help us to be found in Christ for time and for eternity or to be leaning upon him, to be resting in him, to know that he is the great Saviour who has defeated death, who has conquered the grave, who has triumphed victoriously. Bless us, we pray. Bless thy word to our souls. Help us, Lord, not to leave it in the pew, but to take it home in our heart. Go before us in the week that lies ahead, or a week that is unknown to us, but a week that has been known to thee since the beginning of time. Do us good, then, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We shall conclude by singing in Psalm 4. Psalm 4, that's page 202 in the Scottish Psalter. Psalm 4, singing from verse 6 down to the end of the psalm. Psalm 4 from verse 6. O who will show us any good is that which many say. But of thy countenance the light, Lord, lift on us alway. Upon my heart bestowed by thee, more gladness I have found, found than they e'en then when corn and wine did, did most with them abound. I will both lay me down in peace, and quiet sleep will take, because thou only me to dwell in safety, Lord, dost make. These verses of Psalm 4, to God's praise.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.